Welcome to The Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Thanks again for joining us on uh, The Scientific Method. Today's episode covers a topic that we simply can't ignore and we couldn't go on without speaking on, especially with the the guests that we had today. Um, So as a university with a mission of providing healthcare to rural and underserved populations, one often overlooked aspect of those populations that people fail to address or even discuss is the fact that their Uh, health outcomes are often determined by things far outside of the clinic or the hospital. And those things are more or less determined by social inequalities that they face, which then shape the healthcare inequalities that go on to to shape their lives and the lives of their families. Uh, Today's conversation is on the social determinants of health. Um, They list nine things that categorize the social determinants of health, which are education, transportation, housing, employment, health systems and services, income and wealth, public safety, physical environment, and social environment. Um, those are all pretty complex elements, and it's, it's tough to dig into them. So to gain a better understanding of what those elements consist of and the challenges that are facing our communities, uh, today we sat down with Mike Johnson and Dr. Michael Lawler. Uh, Mike Johnson is the executive director of Yakima's Union Gospel Mission, which aims to help people move from homelessness to wholeness. And he has dedicated much of his life to working with underserved populations, gaining deep insight into the challenges that face those communities firsthand. Uh, Dr. Michael Lawler is our president of Pacific Northwest University, and he brings over 35 years of experience in health and human services, much of which focused on improving the health of some of the most vulnerable populations around, including children and American Indian populations, to this enlightening and often eye-opening conversation on the social determinants of health. So we hope you enjoy, and I know I got a lot out of it, and I hope you do too. So thanks for joining me. Um, you came and spoke at our campus, and as soon as you did, I knew that we had to have you on a podcast. And as I learned more about you and your uh, involvement with public health, I knew that we also had to have you on for a conversation like this. And the ability to get you both for the same conversation was really exciting, so I appreciate that. Um, so basically, the in essence, this conversation is about um, social determinants of health. And what it comes down to is I think that almost everybody universally would agree that when you're born, you should have the same ability to have a healthy functioning lifestyle. But in reality, that's certainly not the case. And especially here in the United States, there seems to be this massive disparity. Um, So with each of your histories, I wanted to get you to uh, sit down with me and just sort of have this conversation about what is going on. Um, the history of the problem and how we are working to solve it with both of the, the functions that we serve. 
So if you could just introduce yourselves and kind of explain how you factor into this conversation. Well, I'm Mike Johnson, and I am the CEO of the Yakima Union Gospel Mission. I've spent the last 11 years of my life working full-time in homelessness, uh, first in downtown Seattle, also in Tacoma, which is uh, Washington State's second largest city, uh, and then now here in Yakima, and uh, married to a licensed mental health professional and uh, pretty quickly realized that there was a lot more going on with homelessness that I didn't understand when I got into this field. And uh, the result is that I've had to do a ton of learning about uh, the way in which childhood trauma and abuse and neglect uh, uh, have resulted in a lot of the challenges that we see on our streets now. And, uh, and so when I moved here to Yakima and found that we were in this immense, wonderful partnership with uh, an institution like PNW that uh, that also has a, f a whole person approach to health and well-being, uh, pretty uh, pretty quickly was really excited about that partnership and have been grateful to share uh, at your school some of the learning that I've picked up along the way and glad to be here. Glad to have you, Dr. Yeah. Lawler. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Michael Lawler, I'm president of Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences. Uh, for the past 36 years, I've been working on social welfare and uh, public health uh, matters, uh, mostly for underserved communities, and drawn to PNWU because of its uh, mission to serve rural and medically underserved communities. So very, very pleased to, to be here with you. So when we talk about the social determinants of health, what is it in, uh, in a general sense? It's such a big conversation, and we could probably have a podcast that would last uh, the series of a podcast right. in length. Um, what are, what are the, the general things that people need to understand about social determinants of health? Well, generally, when you look at health outcomes, you think about what determines health, good health, um, whether or not you're going to the clinic or you've been to the clinic. And what determines your health mostly are, are social issues. Where are you born? Uh, where were you raised? How much money you have? Resources that are available to you? The kind of diet that was available to you? Um, your, your parents' health when you were a young child? Uh, all these determine health outcomes. And most of those are not controlled in the clinic. They're not in that clinical uh, interaction with a healthcare provider. You know, they happen in the community. They happen in your family. And it's important for us to talk about those because of, they're not just the context, they're the primary drivers of our health. So socially determined health is an important topic of conversation, you know, for our students, uh, for healthcare providers, for the community. Yeah, and in, in my field, uh, you know, this this issue of so, the social determinants of health, uh, I think, is a really good way into uh, into homelessness because uh, there, there's you know, Doctor as Doctor Lawler just said, there's sort of two wings to this conversation. Is it, one is socioeconomic, right? Is is how you know what access do people have based on where they're living and and what their resources are? Uh, but then there's the other one that is socio relational or socio developmental, right? And and in homelessness, uh, both of those sides of the conversation are extremely relevant. Uh, you know, how how are our our systems, right? How are our systems and structures uh, set up in such a way that everyone has the, the the best opportunity to succeed? But then also, what's going on in, in you know in areas outside those in the most basic social system of the family that is contributing to challenges in being able to succeed? And and for homelessness, they're both just extraordinarily relevant. You know, uh, you could sort of think of. Uh, you know, PNW's mission is being at, at the front end of a system and mine at the back end of the system. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that's well said.
That's an interesting way to look at it. Mm-hmm. I like um, the discussion of homelessness because I feel like that's one that is in the public perspective and something that people literally pass by on the street constantly. And I think that there's a real reaction to um, for many people seeing a homeless person and understanding what has led to that point in their life. And I think that that sort of reflects this overall conversation. So could you talk a bit about um, just the idea that when you pass somebody on a street and, and of course, this is just in a general conversational sense, it seems that many people sort of blame them or think that they're in that position because they're not helping themselves. But there are so many factors that underlie the the place that they've found. And it comes down again to that same conversation about if somebody's unhealthy, people could say it's their fault that they're unhealthy and they can take steps. But instead, there are so many foundational pieces that lead up to that point in their life and their understanding of how to, to achieve health that that sort of factor in and make it more of a more of a complex difficult conversation and uh challenge to solve yeah everywhere i go uh i speak about the the role that adverse childhood experiences have played in the stalled or disrupted development of the people that i work with at our mission uh in order to help people understand precisely what you're saying that it's not merely that what you have here is an otherwise healthy person who has just chosen to die uh early in the rain under a bush uh with a needle in their arm as if that were somehow a rational choice right and and yet right they don't know how to understand those choices that they're seeing in front of them uh the self-destructiveness of, of those choices and the socially disruptive uh, nature of those choices. And as we give them an understanding of that backstory, it, it really helps everybody so much. Uh, I, I think it's not just the people uh, who uh, you've described, right, who, who may be prone to wondering, you know, why don't you make different choices? What's wrong with you? There, there's also another group of people that are very uh, despairing when they see homelessness. And it's the people who, uh, who understand homelessness only as a function of those socioeconomic systems issues. Uh, because in both of those cases, there are things that are outside of our capacity to contribute to change, right? If it's this big socioeconomic capitalistic thing, right? And then I, don't, I can't change global economic capitalism. Uh, but also if it's this other person's just dumb, you know, choices because they're just a, you know, a dumb person or something, I, I, you know, then I can't, I don't have any power over that either. And both of those positions are very despairing. But as we help people see that, you know, we're, we're in this boat together and because we're in this boat together, right. right, right. That means we can actually influence each other Mm -hmm. that it produces so much hope, uh, for the potential of different outcomes. When, when you see, when people begin to understand the social determinants of health, right? Like that, that, Mm -hmm. that, we we can we can contribute to change yeah yeah i mean it's a it, it's a joy uh, to be in a community that has a union gospel mission i mean really modeling the way for the community on how to care for others and uh, trying to bring support and love and a life to people who are lacking uh, in those areas i think it needs to be said that humans are are very interesting because they're born altricial mammals they're vulnerable i mean Bruno Bentelheim, the, the famous child psychiatrist, had a great saying. Mm-hmm. He said, there is no uh, infant, there's only the dyad, because mm-hmm. you know, without somebody caring for a baby, that baby can't persist. Uh, altricial mammals, unlike precocial mammals like giraffes, giraffes are born and they run to, you know, to protect themselves. 
Uh, mammal, you know, humans, you know, we're vulnerable. And so we need interaction with others. We need protection. We need love. We need caring. This is not an option. You can't just go it alone. It's not the way it works. And so uh, a lot of times people are unhealthy because they've lost that connection uh, with others, with their family, uh, with their communities, uh, with their spiritual life. So the Union Gospel Mission, I believe, really unfolds those options for people to kind of put together some kind of life, as I understand it. Well, that's our goal and our mission. I mean, we, we come into that space, you know, uh, with the belief that, uh, and, and I know this isn't everyone's belief, and uh, but, you know, our, our view is that uh, that God made us and, and that he made us that way, mm-hmm. right? He made us in, in a way in which we are born into a family mm-hmm. and we're born into needing each other, uh, you know, and, uh, and he's turned us towards one another and said, now love each other, please. <laughs> you know, like this, this is what I made you to do. And, uh, and so, uh, when someone believes deep in their soul because of how they've grown up, you know, because of the, the absence of that loving dyad that wasn't able to be there for them, uh, that they're either unworthy of, of that, or mm-hmm. it is available to others, but not themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what now modern brain imaging and a lot of advancements in our understanding of the body over the last 20 years, we now understand is like, it has a profound impact on the developing brain of that child right. that then, then grossly uh, determines in many ways their, what they view as the span of choosable universe. Mm-hmm. You know, like what are the choices that are available to me? And, mm-hmm. uh, and so, you know, what we long for, and, and I think I, most people, you know, share this impulse, it is like you started the podcast that everybody would have a fair shot, right? Everybody mm-hmm. would have the same chance, and uh, and so our goal is is yeah. to give folks that chance they didn't get when they were growing up because we believe that God loves them; He's not ready to give up on them. Coming back to that vulnerability, when you spoke on campus, one thing that really uh, stuck out to me were the ACE scores that you talked about and those adverse childhood experiences. Could you talk a bit about those and how those uh, sort of serve as those foundational pieces that end up being these things that reflect into the community? Yeah, sure. So you know. I would encourage all of the listeners to go to cdc.gov slash ACE and, and just real quick, you know, spend 20, 30 minutes learning about the ACE study. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And, uh, and the study looked for 10 really bad things that happened to kids growing up, things like physical abuse or sexual abuse or witnessing domestic violence against mom. And, and the participants got an ACE score of zero to 10, depending on how many of those things they had. Uh, Folks with an A score of zero, uh, they they become homeless at a rate of 1.3 percent, uh, and, and yet with every adverse childhood experience that a person reports, the likelihood of their adult homelessness goes up by two to three times. Uh, yeah, and so it's really dramatic. But not just homelessness. A, a scores are associated with uh, with a with a gradient increase in autoimmune disorders as well, because kids growing up in environments of prolonged toxic stress, mm-hmm. uh, they, that impacts not just their neurodevelopment, but it literally impacts their physical health. The, uh, the, uh, a score is related to hallucinations. It's related to, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. I mean, just all kinds of physical health problems, mental health problems, and then social and behavioral health problems. Uh, because it's not just the relational issue of what's happening in, in the, the relationships. It is a physical impact on that child's developing brain and on their developing body. It's such an interesting conversation. And one thing that 
concerns me about it, but there could also be hope, especially from your experiences, I would imagine. Um, those foundational pieces, those things that add up to that ACE score, are they um, something that remains a, a permanent detriment in life or are they things that we can overcome? Well, uh, you know, like with all traumatic experiences, uh, w- well, like with most traumatic experiences, therapeutic intervention is really beneficial. And without therapeutic intervention, most people will not necessarily metabolize traumatic experience the way that that we would want for them to be able to, right? Like soldiers... Uh, they, they need sometimes, you know, some therapeutic help, uh, but that by getting therapeutic help, uh, uh, PTSD and other trauma related uh, harm can be successfully metabolized and at a minimum mitigated and improved dramatically. And so, yeah, there I find at the mission that, uh, you know, that people can heal to a much larger degree than we often give them credit for. The, the human being is an incredibly robust entity. We are, mm. While we are very easy to wound, we're very difficult to kill. Coming off of that same point, um, when you look at those, those foundational pieces and the way that they shape people to fix them, and you're talking about therapeutic intervention, that comes back to access to that sort of intervention. And I think that that comes right back to these these big conversations that we're having. So can you talk a bit about how the lack of access generally affects the populations who need it the most and how the lack of that care not only affects that one person, but affects the entire community and the entire uh, the nation, really? Well, here's what this is where this question is precisely why I'm most so excited about PNW as an institution and their approach to to medical education. Um as distinct from perhaps some other wonderful, excellent institutions uh, in that uh, the, the, I would say the most common or perhaps traditional uh, understanding of medicine as it's practiced most often in our country is largely scientific, right? It's, 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 it's in a sense, you know, like here's this thing, what's wrong with that thing? And we're going to fix that thing. And ultimately what's really going to fix that thing is this medicine or this surgery or whatever, right? Uh, whereas PNW says yes to all of that, right? But also says that the human being is an incredibly complex entity and that uh, we're, we are far more than merely um, the uh, scientific view of ourselves, right? We, we are social entities as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that impacts our health in many ways, right? And so the, the mission of PNW in terms of educating uh, folks that are then going to go, hopefully, and, and many do, very large do, uh, number do into providing care for often for communities that don't have as much access, right? Due to their ruralness or due to their poverty. Uh, you know, we have this, this enormous clinic, the largest free clinic by patient visits in the state of Washington on the campus here at Union Gospel Mission in Yakima. You know, and one of our largest partners into that is BNWU uh, because it fits with their mission of getting care to people. Now, here's this is what I love about this is that when uh, you know, so Dr. Lawler was talking about the role that the mother-child dyad plays in the development of the child. Harvard Center for the Developing Child calls this serve and return, right? right? So as the as the parent is essentially serving care, you know, to the child, the child is returning uh, you know, back to the mother, uh, positive responses, and the mother bonds to the child, right? Mm-hmm. But the child is also serving, you know, need to the mother, and the mother's responding with care. And what that does for the child is says, I'm worthy, I'm valuable, 
I matter because this big person is taking care of me, right? And when we as a society, when we take the efforts, when we make the commitments, when we take the initiative to ensure that marginalized uh, populations, that rural populations, that poor people, that homeless people are being cared for, not just in a cellular way, but in a personal way, right? What we are saying to people is you matter. And we have decided as a society that you matter just as much as everybody else matters. That is fundamentally transformative, not just to individuals, but to societies. Mm. Well said, Mike. Uh, it's a social justice issue. So if you grew up in an urban area or rural area, you should have access to care. The other big shift uh, in healthcare is, you know, trying to go upstream rather than staying downstream. So public health, population health, prevention, promotion of health. These are things that, that we believe in at PNW. We want to be in communities and rural and medically underserved communities to help people stay there, to help the economy, you know, uh, uh, um, continue to be strong. We want those communities to, to stay current um, because what we're doing is we're talking about health. We're looking out for people who maybe are lacking those relationships, uh, trying to connect people with community. Um, because, you know, in the United States, we spent a lot of time and a lot of money on technology for interventions in healthcare, and yet our overall outcomes are poor. So we're really good at, at some of the heroic efforts to, 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 to preserve life downstream, but upstream, not so much. Mm. Uh, so how, how do we contribute to healthy relationships, healthy diets, making sure there's communities that people can, can attend to, churches people can uh, go to? Um, these are these are important. They're, they're critical. They're the largest part of of what makes up a health outcome. That's the social uh, determinants of health. So, a healthcare provider may be part of those interventions, but he or she also has to contribute to to the upstream stuff, to mm -hmm. the prevention and the promotion of health. And these are the principles that we're teaching at at PNWU. Yeah, that's really important. One another thing that you brought up in your speech uh, at our campus was just in Seattle, which is just over the mountains from us. Uh, new terminology that I picked up living here. Uh, they've spent almost two hundred million dollars uh, recently on homelessness. I think that was in two thousand seventeen, and it seems like a problem that is only guaranteed to get worse as it develops. And I think that people look at those massive amounts of spending and they see it as a waste of money because it's not improving the problem, but. I think it comes back to where is the money going and where could it be going instead that might actually get back upstream rather than downstream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Seattle is, is, uh, is like a lot of major metropolitan areas in that, uh, they're continuing to struggle, right, with street homelessness and not making the kind of progress that they would prefer and, uh, that everyone would prefer. Right. And, uh, you know, and so uh, the the challenge is how do you how do you actually treat what's really going on? And uh, uh, and and Seattle has uh, is is in a really tough place because it's in a sense um, fallen off the bubble. The problem's gotten ahead of it, and uh, and to get out uh, back in front of the problem is going to be extraordinarily challenging for the city and for their leaders. And everyone there is good people doing the best that they can. I, so please don't hear me, you know, being critical of anyone or their, or their, or their efforts, but, uh, 
but that what you know the the Seattle Times article that you showed me you know it's demonstrating is that people are increasingly becoming interested in, in asking the question of what's deeper like what's underneath this and how do we deal with what's underneath this and uh, and that a symptom based approach doesn't seem to have been effective and, and instead it just is increasingly expensive without necessarily being increasingly effective right mm. and and so. Um, so people, you know, people have a sense that that uh, that there's more. There must be more to the problem that we're, that our approaches aren't aren't getting to. And uh, my hope is that the policy and approach there in Seattle can can adapt, right? As they're mm -hmm. learning from what's maybe not worked as much as they wish. And uh, and and again, it's why I'm so grateful to be in a community like Yakima, and have partners like PNWU because uh, we. It, communities like Yakima are, are more prone to uh, understanding that we're in this boat together, mm -hmm. right? And uh, and the approach that PNW has to health, the total person, whole person approach to health, understands the, the social determinants of health and the way in which we're all in this thing together. I think that positions of communities like Yakima uh, better to be able to bring whole person approaches to homelessness. Uh, I wonder sometimes if Seattle's highly technical uh, culture, you know, that everything is a technological fix and that if we can just find the right way to add up the algorithms, then mm -hmm. we'll get this thing. Uh, if that perhaps is one of the challenges for them in not seeing the human, social, you know, complicated personal issues associated with homelessness, uh, they're keeping wanting to try to find that that light switch or that set of conditions that, that can be created in a uh, in, in another way. Uh, and so I, I wonder if that gets in the way for them. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, one thing that I want to talk about, you had worked at the union gospel mission in Seattle, which is, uh, you could consider sort of ground zero for this conversation that we're having. Um, now one interesting thing that you did, and I, uh, was fascinated by this too. Again, your talk on campus, I was like, we have to have them on a podcast, uh, this climbing team that you put together. And I think that this reconnects to a lot of the, the health conversations that I've had where one of the most important things for people seems to be having a purpose and having some sort of a place in society where they actually uh, can benefit the people around them, not only themselves. So can you talk about your experiences with that and how that changed from the, the typical treatment that they might give somebody who comes into a, a clinic, uh, a homeless shelter or what, what have you? Um, and how that shaped the people that you were able to impact. Yeah, well, his, historically, when we first started out with drug and alcohol treatment, it was based predominantly on a, on a concept called chemical dependency. And the, the idea was that the body had become dependent on this chemical and that uh, the uh, the addiction was really the body continuing to demand the chemical in order to, to avoid the distress of withdrawal. Uh, but that if we could simply get somebody through withdrawal, break that physical connection to the chemical, then uh, they would be fine. And so uh, the the early approaches to treatment were largely short term. There were 30, maybe 60, 90 days, the, all, the goal of which was just simply to break the body's connection, cellular connection to the chemical. Uh, we, we now understand much more uh, that... Uh, that much of addiction has to do with just a deep uh, existential loneliness that is the result of uh, growing up in adverse conditions. And most of our folks at the mission, their age of onset for their substance use disorder was 12. 
I mean, they, imagine being a 12 year old with a substance use disorder, right? Yeah. Um, but that's what they had to do to survive. And, and so uh, we, while I was at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, I, I, uh, I just had the idea of like trying to give, you know, this is back to what Dr. Lawler was saying about access, right? And opportunity, uh, trying to give some opportunity and access to people uh, at, our, at our place that their families weren't able to give them. And so, we t- so I started just packing up the van and taking, guy, taking guys up to Mount Rainier for day hikes um, to let them brought, to broaden their world, to give them experience of nature, uh, exposure to nature and, and, and positive environment. It's very helpful with stress and anxiety and depression. You know, wanted to be able to to do that for them. Uh, one of them proposed the idea that we should just that day we should just keep going right on up to the top. And obviously, you know, that's that was a joke, but it gave me this nutty idea that maybe we could. And and so in 2011, we climbed Mount Rainier with four guys from our addiction recovery program, and uh, the local news featured it, and uh, that won some awards, some Emmys, and a, a national Edward R. Murrow Award for the best TV news document in the country that year. Yeah. Uh, And that got the attention of some independent filmmakers in New York who made a documentary film called A New High that ran on Netflix for the last two years. It just rotated off, but it's still on Amazon Prime. Uh, So if you're a Prime member, it's included in your membership there, Uh, A New High. Uh, And and what, what basically what our climbers, what our recovery climbers told us the first year is that um, the accomplishment of getting clean and sober was was a taller mountain, right? They were much more proud of that. The, the benefit they got out of the climbing uh, experience was the team, was the social and, and experience of yeah. belonging and, and engaging in healthy behaviors yeah. as part of a constructive and mutually reinforcing social system mm-hmm. uh, that they'd never been in what amounts to, let's call it a healthy replacement family. You yeah, know? It's a community. Exactly. It's a community. And, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk about resilience and we talk about protective factors. So there's risk factors, you know, the adverse childhood experiences are risk factors, but they're protective factors that promote resilience. And those are relationships. Precisely. And, and, and things to do. Attachment, opportunity. Uh, hope, hope for the future. Yeah. Uh, all those things. Um, you know, we, you know, I study uh, children's uh, uh, conversations about their own well-being and health. And, you know, no matter where I study it in the U.S., internationally, I've looked at it with 30,000 children internationally, and they all say the same thing. They want a a family that loves them, cares for them, different terms for that. They want a safe neighborhood. They want a good school and they want peers they can hang out with. Those are, you know, those are those are children telling us that. And I think what they're indicating to us is that these basic things are protective factors. And with that. Uh, we, we see resiliency. So your work with these gentlemen uh, uh, climbing Mount Rainier was a way of kind of helping them with their protective factors. They can they can climb Mount Rainier. They have community. They have relationships, people who believe in them. Yeah. It- and what we've seen, we've gotten 39 homeless men and women to the summit in our first eight years of wow. climbing. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and what we've seen is essentially the I agree with Dr. Lawler. The, the human being is the most fascinating thing I've ever experienced. And, uh, our, you know, our brains have roughly as many neurons as the average sized galaxy, you know, about a hundred billion. And, uh, and so I, I sometimes tell people that, you know, humans are, are like a galaxy on legs, right? Mm-hmm. And the human, the human being is so resilient. It, we, we so, our bodies so want to live, thrive and develop, like just at our, at a, 
bodily level, right? That what we found is that we can, if we can give these adults what they needed as a kid yeah. and didn't get, mm-hmm. but we can give it to them as adults, they're, they're, they will pick up in the developmental process. They'll pick up where they left off, mm-hmm. but they will pick up. And if we can keep giving them that over a sufficient period mm-hmm. of time, then they grow, they heal, they, they become healthy, working, wonderful folks that are raising their own families. And right. many of our climbers, most of our climbers, 80 plus percent of our climbers are clean and sober, wow. working and raising their own families now. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, because they, they got, and, and so if you just give them that, like their own brains, bodies, and cells, right? They will pick up in the process. They, mm-hmm. That's that's how that's how resilient humans are. are you mm-hmm. know that, uh, that we just got to give folks a chance, and if we give them a chance, give them these mm-hmm. basic protective factors, right. you know, and and protect against the the negative factors, most folks will will do really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really will. Mm-hmm. And. The translating that sort of lesson in that 80%, uh, how do you do that in a, a wider range where you're not just getting a whole bunch of people to climb Mount Rainier? Because, of course, that's not a realistic possibility. But it's but, not about the mountain. It's about the team, right? It, mm-hmm. and, and so it doesn't have to be done on a mountain. It just has to be done in a team, right? Like whatever it is, it needs to be done around health around so around around you know creating this sense of team and uh, and that can be done in so many ways it's just we have to get this message out you know that people need certain things mm-hmm. and if we can give them so those certain things the vast majority of them will be healthy well adjusted and contribute to one another and society and be and have joyful productive lives thanks again for tuning into the scientific method be the first to hear upcoming episodes, including our conversations with the nation's leading healthcare experts on topics such as opioids in America, healthcare reform, corporate funded research, and more. Subscribe now.